So uh, we're studying the book of Ephesians, and uh, of course, uh, just in the way of just a little bit of review here tonight. Uh, I won't go into uh, the depths of the review that we what we've all what we've been talking about in the previous sessions. But the book of Ephesians, of course, is a letter to the church at Ephesus, written by the apostle Paul. And we, in our study, we found out that that Paul first went to the city of Ephesus, which was the the main city in. Uh, Asia Minor, what's now modern-day Turkey, part of Turkey. He first went there. It's recorded in Acts 18, 19 that he went with Priscilla and Aquila, and he stayed just a short time, maybe just a couple of weeks, if that long. And um, so nothing really transpires ministry-wise there other than he goes. And they'd tried to go sometime before in Acts 16. Uh, we, we read that, that they it said we tried to go into Asia, which that would, Ephesus would have been the main city probably that they were going to go into, going into Asia, which is, they called it Asia. It's called Asia in the Bible, but it's not what we consider Asia today. It's Asia Minor, which is, again, modern-day Turkey. Um, but we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going in. And uh, so it, this was a matter of time, and we talked about that all in the, in the first couple of messages. But... Uh, then they go back in Acts 18, it's recorded, and only stay a couple of weeks. Uh, but then uh, the birth of the church at Ephesus is recorded very clearly in Acts 19, uh, 1 through 7, and really through the whole chapter there. Uh, but uh, Acts 19, Paul comes uh, back to Ephesus, finds a group of 12 men, and uh, there he recognizes that they're disciples, and he assumes that they're followers of Jesus, and he asks them the question that you probably are familiar with, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, wait a minute, what were you baptized into? And they said, well, John's baptism. And so then he realizes, hey, they've not heard, they've only heard about the ministry of John the Baptist and his message. They didn't know the full, the full story. They didn't know that Jesus had come. Uh, John the Baptist was getting everybody ready for Jesus. They didn't know Jesus had come. They didn't know Jesus had died on the cross, been raised from the dead. So Paul tells them the whole story. They receive Jesus. They're baptized in water. And then the Bible says, and then Paul lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak with tongues and prophesy. That's the birth of the church at Ephesus. So the the church at Ephesus began as a spirit-filled church. Praise God. And so over the, over the next three years, um, Paul uh, is there in Ephesus. And during that time, uh, a, a great work of God takes place there. There are miracles. We, we have, on our, we have our, our prayer clause here, and we have a scripture uh, on this prayer cloth, and that's Acts 19, 11 and 12. And that is when, from Paul's ministry in Ephesus where it says God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. That was going on in Ephesus and, and great things were happening. And uh, over the space of that time that Paul was there, the Bible says that, that all the people that lived in Asia, again, Asia Minor, uh, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so that was a a mighty work of God, a great work of God that was taking place there. Ephesus was a city that was steeped in idolatry. It was steeped in sexual perversion. And so the gospel, and and the Bible goes on to say there in Acts 19, that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Praise God, it prevailed over all of that. So, 
So it's really, uh, you know, fascinating to, to, to see and to look at what God did in this place, in Ephesus. And so Paul leaves there after three years. He, he ends up, after some time, uh, being arrested. He's in, he's in uh, Caesarea for uh, a time, and then eventually he's transferred to Rome. And from Rome, which is a few years after he has been there in Ephesus, he writes a letter back to the church at Ephesus. And so... Um, and, and so, uh, when we, as we, so, so that's, that's how, that's how we have the book of Ephesians. And so, um, so as we study this book, we've, we've talked about this already, but just in the way of review, the book of uh, Ephesians has six chapters and it, the book is divided evenly. The first three chapters being where Paul is, is writing to them and, and teaching them about positional truth, who we are in Christ what we have in Christ, what Jesus did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection, our authority in Christ. He covers all of that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the book, the letter, uh, which we have as a book now, transitions, and he begins to talk about, okay, uh, this is how you take what you, what you have in Christ and who you are in Christ and this is the practical application. This is how you live it out in your everyday life, in your relationships, and, and in your everyday life. And so it's a, it's a, uh, a neatly, neatly divided in that way, so we can, we can see that and study it that way. Uh, there's, there's two great prayers uh, that are recorded in the book of Ephesians that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and one of them we've looked at already. Uh, the second one is in chapter 3, which we probably won't get to tonight. But we'll, we're going to pick up, though, in, here in chapter 1 with the prayer that he's praying for them. So uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 15 is where we'll, we'll start in the scripture tonight. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again, it's, it's hard to know where Paul finishes the prayer and then starts teaching again because it kind of all just flows into one. But this is the prayer that he prayed for them. And it's a prayer that's, that, that is applicable and perfect for us to pray for ourselves today. It's a prayer we should pray for ourselves. And it's a prayer that, you, that we can pray and should pray for other believers. If you want to do something besides just pray, oh, God bless them and give them a good day. Let, let, the, sh- let the sun shine on them today then pray this. Pray this prayer over, uh, over believers. I've, I've shared with you Brother Hagin's testimony about how he got a hold of these prayers and when he was pastoring, last church he was pastoring, and he began to pray these prayers. And 
he said that he, that he grew more spiritually in six months, got more revelation, more understanding of the Word of God in six months' time than he had in all of his time in ministry up until that time, 12 years of ministry, and uh, by praying these prayers. Praise God. So uh, this is not a low-level prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It, it talks about having our eyes opened, our spiritual eyes. talks about our understanding, being enlightened, so we would know who we are in Christ, so we would know what our position is, what our inheritance is, so we would know the power and the authority that we have in Christ. And um, so, it's, again, it's a great prayer that we can and should pray uh, our, for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Amen? It's a prayer that I pray over you on a regular basis. So, uh, just know you're getting, this, this is, you're getting prayed for. Amen? In this way. So, um, so he continues as we go into chapter 2. He continues talking about our authority and our position in Christ. In verse 1, he says, And you he made alive who were, dead, <coughs> who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. So again, he, he begins, he's, he teaches, he's teaching them uh, in, this, in this letter, and he's telling them uh, what their situation was. And uh, he said, you, he, he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. These, the, uh, the, uh, the Ephesians, of course, they were Gentiles, and so they were separated from God, and um, they were dead in their sins. Again, this was a very uh, godless place, a very godless city. And Paul goes in there and begins to preach the gospel and these people start respond and they begin getting saved and, and, and getting born again. And so he's reminding them of their, of their position, what happened to them. And he said, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And you used to walk after that and you used to follow that. And we know that, that being dead spiritually doesn't mean uh, ceasing to exist or doesn't mean when we think of someone being dead, we think of a corpse laying there and you know, spiritually dead means separated from God, all right? And, uh, you know, there, anybody remember? I never did see the movie, but I remember hearing the title, Dead Man Walking. Ever heard of that? Well, that's what, that's what this is, dead man, dead man walking. The, that's what we were all. Before, before we got saved, we were dead men walking. We might have been alive outwardly, but we were dead spiritually. We were separated from God. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, you, you he made alive, who were, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You used to walk and follow that. You used to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, Satan, who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then he says in verse 3, among whom also we all, all of us, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Uh, so there was nothing we could do to remedy our condition because our nature needed to be changed. You know, the, the problem was our nature was wrong. We were separated from God. That sin nature had come alive in us. 
and uh, that, that had been passed down. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, that sin nature entered them back in the Garden of Eden. And because they were our first parents, that, sin, that seed was passed down to the entire human race. And again, you know, a child, a, a, a little one, a baby is innocent, but there's a point uh, in, in your life, in every person's life, where, where that, that, that seed of sin or that sin nature awakens. Paul, Paul said it this way in Romans. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, he got to, he got to an age where he understood right from wrong and he still chose to do wrong. And when he did that, that's when sin revived and he died spiritually. Well, that happened to all of us. And so, um, so again, our nature needed to be changed. And that's what he tell, is telling the Ephesians here. He said, you were, he said, you were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But thank God we, we weren't left. They weren't left and we aren't left in that bad condition because the next verse says in there in verse 4, but God, but God. He did something about it. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved. Why did he do it? His great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. We know about being saved. We've heard about being saved all of our lives. But here's what being saved really means. It means made alive together with Christ. He said, when you were dead in trespasses, God, because of his great love, made you alive together with Christ. And then he says, oh, by the way, by grace you've been saved. Or as in other words, this is another way of saying, by grace you've been saved. You've been made alive together with Christ. But that's not all he did. He didn't just make us alive with Christ. He keeps going here. Verse 6 says this, and, everybody say and. All right. And raised us up together. And he doesn't stop right there. Everybody say and again. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up together with Christ. And we have been made to sit together in, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that in heavenly places, as we pointed out, is talking about our place of authority in Christ. That in the ages, and then if you go back again to the prayer in chapter 1, he, he, he clarifies it and he says it's far above all principality and power. Amen. Amen? And um, so let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 20. That's what I, was, what I connected it to. If we can go back to Wendy, I'm sorry. I said Curtis. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're the one back there. I'm used, to, I'm used to Curtis being there on Wednesday. All right, which he worked in Christ, okay? He says, I'm praying for you that you would know the exceeding power, exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And it's the power, same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, seated Jesus at his, the Father's, right hand in the heavenly places. Well, again, he raised us up together with him and made us to sit together with him in the heavenly places. And then, he, and then he clarifies that or explains that even further in the next verse, in verse 21, and he tells us where that is, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. Let's, let's, while we're on the thought, let's keep going here. Next 22 there, Wendy. And he put all things under his feet. 
all right, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his, what? Body. So Jesus is the head, and the church is the body, all right? So here, let me get up on the platform so you can see clearly, all right? It's my head, right? We all we agree with that? Okay. All right. Now, where are my feet? My feet are in my feet are in the, in my body, right? At the we can't say that my feet are in, in my head. My feet are in my body. In fact, my feet are at the lowest place of my body. Amen. My feet are not right here, right? You know, this would look weird if I I can't put my foot up there, but I can put my shoe up there. That would look weird, right? Well, so he says, let's go back to 22 for a second. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head. Jesus is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So the the church is the body, the feeder in the body. So all things are under his... It didn't say he put all things under his head. He put all things under his feet. Are you following? So that means, that means all things have been put under us through the name of Jesus and through our connection with Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are in the body of Christ and we're in Christ, all things are under us. That means we've got authority over all the powers of darkness, principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named. Amen? That's our position. This is from Billy Brim's little book, The The Authority of the Believer and How to Use It. And I think I can, hopefully I can find it. Yeah. Um, So she's quoting from from, uh, uh, Reverend Macmillan. Uh, that she quotes quite, borrows quite a lot from him in this book. And, and he's talking about this very passage that we're, that we're looking at right now. And he says this, The elevation of his people with him to the heavenlies has no other meaning than that they are made sharers of the authority which is his. They are made to sit with him. That is, they share his throne. To share a throne means without question to partake of the authority which it represents. Indeed, they have been thus elevated in the plan of God. They being us, believers, all right? Elevated in the plan of God for this very purpose that they may even now exercise to the extent of their spiritual apprehension authority over the powers of the air and over the conditions which those powers have brought about on the earth and are still creating through their ceaseless manipulations of the minds and circumstances of mankind. All right? So so what he's saying is, is that believers are to exercise authority over the powers of darkness and the things that we see going on in the world... You know, we can have, we can, we can do something about it by using our authority in Christ. And he says that we will exercise, we will only exercise our authority. He says, there's a key, key phrase here. He says, to the extent of their spiritual apprehension. 
So, so to the degree that you have a revelation, that we have a revelation of this, that's the degree that will exercise our authority. And that's why Paul said, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling and, and, and all of those things. Praise God. So let's go back for a minute. Let's go back then to uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. <coughs> for by grace... You've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we're saved by God's grace and through our faith. It's God's grace and it's my faith. Me believing the message of salvation, accepting it into my life. That's what brings salvation to me, by doing that. And I didn't earn it. I didn't even earn, you know, faith. I didn't even earn the faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen. And so all I had to do was listen to the message and, and agree and, and say, yes, I believe that and agree with it. And, uh, and, and, that, and then faith came. And then with that faith, I could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Praise God. Because of what he did in his grace. Praise God. So he says that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not at verse nine, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're, we're, we're create. He's talking about, he's talking about who we are as new creations. We are, uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And so the good works don't produce salvation, but the good works are a result of salvation. Amen. Uh, We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's the created in Christ Jesus that came first, the new birth. The good works then issue forth from that. Amen. All right. I like like, uh, when we uh, talked about this last week too, but I want to point it out again. The New Living Translation. Uh, Wendy, let's put it up in the New Living. Look at this. For we are God's masterpiece. Isn't that amazing? The word, the word workmanship, the Greek word, is from the same root word that, that, the, uh, that, that, that we get the word poet from. So, uh, so you're a work of art. Amen. Uh, we are God's masterpiece. Praise God. You ought to see yourself as God's masterpiece. Amen. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Wow. Wow. How wonderful. Amen? All right. Now, we, let's, let, now this is new territory. <laughs> that was all review. <laughs> uh, verse 11. Verse 11. Therefore, remember... So, again, uh, number one rule of Bible interpretation, when you see the word, therefore... Stop and find out what it's there for, all right? So he says, therefore, remember. In other words, therefore means because of what I've just got through telling you, right? Okay, so he says, therefore, remember. Again, he's, he's reminding them of, of where they were at before Christ. He says, therefore, remember that you, he says, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God. So again, the church at Ephesus was a Gentile church. These were, these were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And so Paul, who is Jewish, is reminding them of their plight and their condition without Christ. He says, you were, he says you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, but they got saved. And so, again, let's, let's, take the, let's go back to verse 12 for a second, Wendy. And let's take the knots out, okay? He said, at that time you were without Christ, okay? You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we, if we take the knots out, now that we are saved, we have hope and we are with God in the world. Isn't that good? Amen. And, uh, and again, the good news is, is that we're, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God. But he says, he says you, you were called, uh, back in verse 11 there, he said, you were once Gentiles in the flesh and you were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Of course, that's the Jews that he's talking about. And he says, uh, you, you didn't have any covenant with God. The Jews did. And, uh, and you know, he's talking about the old covenant there. But he's saying, look, now you've been, you've been brought in. Now you're, you're in covenant with God. In fact, you're in this new covenant. You're in this better covenant and this new covenant. And so, again, he, uh, he addresses this with the, uh, with the Galatians because the letter that he wrote to the Galatians, he'd gone to, and Galatia was, a, was another region that he had gone to. It wasn't just one, there were, there were multiple churches in the region of Galatia. And so he writes a letter back to, the, to all the churches there. And, uh, and, and in the letter he wrote, he had to correct some, some things that were coming in there because after he had come and preached, then, then others had come and said, well, we're glad you, we're glad you believed on Jesus now. But these were, these were uh, Jewish people that, that came along and said, now, we're, we're glad you're saved and all, but to really, to really walk with God, you need to be circumcised. And to really know God, you've got to keep the law. And Paul had to write a letter and correct all of that and say, no, no, no. And, and here's, part, here's one thing that he said to them in Galatians 5 and verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That's what counts. That's what matters is faith working. Not your outward condition of whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. What counts is faith working through love. And then again in, in chapter 6 and verse 15... He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Praise God. And so that's basically the same thing that he's telling them here in Ephesians. He said, you were without Christ, but now you've been, you were who were once far off. You've been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Praise God. The blood of Jesus brings us near to God. And, and when I say near... Not near in the sense of, well, we're close, but not quite there. Near means we've been brought to him. Amen. We were far away, now we're with him. We were separated from him, now we're connected to him. 
We were without him and without a covenant with him. Now we're in covenant with him. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. All right. So let's go to, let's go to verse uh, 14 of Ephesians 2. And, he, and he, he says here, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Both who? Both people that were uncircumcised and people that were circumcised. Jew and Gentile. And has broken down the middle wall of separation. There was a separation point, according to the Jews. Oh, okay, circumcised or uncircumcised. All the uncircumcised on this side, all the circumcised on this side. Wall of separation between the two, all right? Uh, but Jesus uh, made both one, and he broke down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man... From the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So whether we were Jew or whether we were Gentile, now that we're in, and he's talking, he's only talking about, he's talking about people that are in Christ. He's not talking about people that are, that are still just Jewish, but are not saved, that have not accepted Christ. He's talking about Jews that have accepted Jesus and Gentiles that have accepted Jesus. He says we're now one in Christ. All right. In verse 28 uh, of Galatians 3, he talks about it again. And he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. Christ Jesus. Now, again, he's not talking about gender fluid there, so don't, don't get any wrong ideas. He's talking about spiritually. He's talking about that, that, that there's neither Jew nor Greek. No, I'm a, I'm a new creation. My identity is not Jew or Greek. My identity is in Christ. My identity is not slave or free. My identity is in Christ. You might be a, you, a person might, have been a, might, be a, might be a slave during that time, but they've accepted Jesus. Now their identity is not slave. Their identity is in Christ. Their person might be free and not a slave. Their identity is not, well, hey, I'm, I'm free. Their identity is, I'm in Christ. Their identity is not, well, I'm a man. Well, I'm a woman, you know. And, of course, women didn't have a good place and, 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 a, and a respected place in society back then. And so... It, but there was no, uh, in Christ, though, it says, well, you know, my identity is not I'm a man. Certainly, we know, we're, we know there's male and female. But he said, who I identify with, number one is I'm in Christ. Amen? Amen. My pronouns are in Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about. You're all one. He says, uh, in Christ Jesus. And there's actually three groups of people that God deals with. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. He says, give no offense either to the Jews. All right, so these are Jews that are, that are they've not accepted Jesus. They're still Jews. Now, God deals with them. God's still working in them and through them and, and with them. God's got a plan for them. All right, the Jews, okay. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks. Another, uh, that's just another way of saying the, whole, the entire Gentile world. 
All right? So these are Gentiles. These are people that are, that are not Jewish, and they're, not, they're, they're Gentile, and they're not saved. All right? Or to the church of God. See, so if you're born again, then your identity is not Jew or Gentile anymore. It's I'm in the church. I'm in Christ. I'm a believer. All right. That's how God sees you. Amen. That's the three groups of people that God deals with. Jews, Gentiles, and then the church. Amen. All right. Are we seeing that? Verse 17. All right. It says, and he came and preached peace. To you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus came and preached peace. In other words, reconciliation to God. Wholeness. Jesus reconciled us to God. Amen. And he gave us, again, 2 Corinthians says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right. We're going out and telling the world, God's not mad at you. You can be saved. You can, you can be in his family. Just say yes to it. All right? And uh, so he preached peace to you who were afar off. He's talking to the Ephesians there again. They were Gentiles. They're, you know, they're, the, the place where they lived, again, was steeped in idolatry, steeped in sexual perversion. They were far off from God. But Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off from God. Amen? And he preached the same message to the Jews who had the revelation of God and were close to God and knew about God. They were near, but they weren't in yet. Okay? So he preached peace to those who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. And it says, for through him... We both, those who were far off and those who were near, through Jesus we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the only way that the Jews truly have access to Jesus or to the Father is through Jesus, just like the Gentiles. Amen? All right, so through Jesus we both have access by one spirit to the Father. All right, let's go to verse uh, 19. continues writing to them here, and he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we're in God, in other words, God's family. He said, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens and you're members of the household of God. You're in God's family now, he's telling the Ephesians, and he's telling us we're in God's family. Amen. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building... Wait a minute. What building is he talking about? He's talking about us again. He's talking about us now as a building. He's talking about believers now as a building. In whom the whole... And he says that... The chief cornerstone of the building is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the building, the chief cornerstone of the foundation is Jesus Christ. And the foundation of the building is the apostles and prophets. I'm going to say more about that in a, in a few moments here. Um, but he says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together together. 
for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the wonderful truth of the new covenant is this, is that now we as believers are the house or we are the house or the temple of God. God doesn't live in a man-made building anymore. He lives in you and me. He lives in us individually and he lives in us collectively. He says we're being built together into a holy temple. Uh, we're, We're being fitted together and we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Praise God. And he lives in us now by his spirit. That's the wonderful truth of the new covenant. Praise God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Amplified says this, Do you not discern and understand that you, the whole church at Corinth, he's writing to the Corinthians, so he says the whole church at Corinth, we could say the whole church at coming, or wherever we're at, are God's temple, his sanctuary, and that God's spirit has his permanent dwelling in you to be at home in you collectively as a church and also individually. Amen. Peter talks about this as well, pointing out just like Paul does in Ephesians that Jesus is the cornerstone. Here in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So we're both the temple and we're the priest in the temple. Think about that. Amen. You're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, verse 7, therefore to you who believe he is precious... But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Again, that's Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, that we're built up uh, into the spiritual house, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone uh, of the house, and that we are, as the church, as believers, we are the spiritual house that's being built, the spiritual temple that God lives in. Amen? And uh, so let's go back to verse 20 and we'll, we'll close with this. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul, again, Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, as a wise master builder, remember this passage? He said, I laid the foundation. He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right, And so Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the foundation. But here he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I want to, what's he talking about there? I want to read you uh, a little bit out of this book from Kenneth Hagin. It's called He Gave Gifts uh, Unto Men. And I'll, I'm going to start right here. Uh, he said, in, 19, in 1987, I had a visitation from the Lord... The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me and talked to me. The entire experience lasted two hours and 50 minutes. Some of the things the Lord talked to me about in that visitation are found in the book, Plans, Purposes, and Pursuits. 
In that visitation, Jesus talked to me about his plan for the New Testament church and how his plan for the church in worship is different under the new covenant than it was under the old covenant. Then he began to talk to me about some of his plans for the church concerning ministry. His plan for the church in ministry is also different under the new covenant than it was under the old covenant. And in this discussion, he began to talk to me about the ministry gifts that he has set in the church. In this book, I'm going to share with you some of the differences in Jesus' plan for the ministry under the new covenant, especially regarding the offices of the apostle, prophet, and pastor. Shortly after the 1987 visitation, it seemed that controversy arose in different parts of the body of Christ, particularly concerning the offices of the apostle and the prophet. Of course, Jesus knew the doctrinal errors that were about to surface in the church. I believe he addressed these issues in order to maintain balance and to help keep ministers from getting in a ditch doctrinally. You see, there is an element of truth in all doctrinal error. Usually the error occurs when people push biblical truth to the extreme. Actually, there has to be an element of truth involved in these spiritual tangents or no one would believe them. The error would be too obvious. I'm against the extreme on any issue. People can even be extreme regarding faith. That's why I encourage people not to get into the ditch, into extremes and excesses in any area. Just stay right in the middle of the road. Many of these errors about the offices of the apostle and the prophet are due to lack of correct teaching in this area. In the 1987 visitation, Jesus began talking about the office of the apostle. He said there are four classes or ranks of apostles. And within these different classes or ranks, apostles can have different degrees or measures of anointing. Jesus continued, there are not only different classes of apostles, but there are also different classes of prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and there are different degrees of anointings within these different classes. I think we've all seen people in these various offices ministering under varying degrees of anointing. Even in the pastoral office, some pastors carry a different type or measure of anointing than others. And we see evangelists, prophets, and teachers with different degrees of anointing upon them. The same thing is true in the apostolic office. Of course, so he says, so this, this next heading is first class of apostle is Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus stands at the head of the list in each of the fivefold ministry gifts. The Bible calls Jesus an apostle. The Greek word translated apostle also means a messenger, a sent one, or a commissioned one. Hebrews 3 1 says, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Jesus certainly was commissioned, wasn't he? Jesus stands at the head of the list of sent ones. He is called an apostle because in his earthly ministry, he was a sent one, a messenger, and a commissioned one to bring the good news of salvation to the world. Then Jesus calls himself a prophet, Matthew thirteen fifty seven. He also stood in the evangelist office because he proclaimed the good news of salvation, Luke nineteen ten. Jesus was a pastor. He called himself the good shepherd, John 10, 11 through 16. And he was a teacher. One of the main facets of Jesus' ministry was teaching people, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus is in a class by himself in each ministry gift. No one else will ever stand in that highest class because Jesus had the spirit without measure. No other person, that's John three thirty four. no other person ever has nor ever will be anointed without measure. Believers have the spirit by measure. 
Uh, to say it another way, Jesus had a degree of anointing upon him in his earthly ministry that no one else will ever have. Believers have a measure of that same anointing on them because they have the Holy Spirit. And it seems probable that the body of Christ as a whole has the same measure of anointing Jesus had upon him. All right. Uh, let, me, let me try to cut to the chase here. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Uh, well, I'll just go into this. In the 1987 uh, visitation, Jesus went on to tell me about the other classes or ranks of apostles. The second class, so Jesus is, is at the head of the list, obviously, okay? Second class of apostles, apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles of the Lamb are in the second class of apostles. Jesus said to me, the apostles of the Lamb are in a class by themselves. No one else can ever be in that class because there are no more apostles of the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, the Word of God talks about the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. There are only twelve apostles of the Lamb, and no one except the twelve apostles who accompanied with Jesus will ever stand in that second class of apostle. Uh, no one else could stand in that second class because the apostles of the Lamb were sent once for a specific time and purpose. All right? And... Uh, and so it's uh, when they had to choose a replacement for Judas, he talks about this in Acts chapter 1, they, it had to be someone that had traveled with them. Uh, it says, uh, uh, which, it says, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So the one that they chose to replace Judas had been with them. This wasn't one of the twelve, but became one of the twelve then after, after he was chosen, then after, uh, after uh, the departure and death of Judas, okay? Uh, but, the, but the qualification means you had to be with Jesus in his earthly ministry for those three and a half years. So you, we can see that that's a very limited group of people, right, that could, do, that could qualify for that. Okay. Am I losing you here? Are we getting lost in the weeds? Whatever I doing okay? All right, you're wondering. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to try to get, get to this here. Okay. In, in the 1987 visitation, Jesus called this second class of apostle, the apostles of the Lamb, foundational apostles because God used them to help lay down New Testament doctrine. Uh, okay, good. Thank you. Uh, having been built on what? What does the scripture say? built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus, in this 1987 visitation, as he's speaking to Brother Hagin, he says, Jesus called these 12, the 12 apostles foundational apostles because they helped to lay down New Testament doctrine, and some of them wrote various books of the Bible, okay? Um, some people say that when the apostles chose Matthias, they missed God because Paul should have been chosen. But Paul couldn't qualify as an apostle of the Lamb because he was not an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Okay? All right. Um, let, we'll skip on down uh, the third class of apostles. Okay. The third class of apostle is the rank or class of apostle that Paul was in. A characteristic of apostles in, in the, this class is that they also helped lay the doctrinal foundation of the New Testament. In the 1987 visitation, Jesus also said to me, foundational apostles are found in the second and third class of apostles. 
Apostles and prophets of that rank or level were anointed to lay down the doctrine of the New Testament. Apostles and prophets of the second and third class are to be considered foundational apostles and prophets because the gospel of the New Testament was revealed to them. Paul was in that third class of foundational New Testament apostles and prophets. He wrote a large portion of the New Testament and he wasn't taught the revelation of this mystery of Christ by man. He received it from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, he, and he quotes Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 here. He says, Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul preached the revelation of the gospel to, early, to the early New Testament saints, so we don't need to lay any other foundation. We only need to build upon the foundation which has already been laid for us in the New Testament. And again, he quotes that scripture. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The church, the body of Christ, is built on the foundation that the apostles and prophets already laid down for us in the New Testament. Now we are to build on that foundation. No one is receiving additional revelation to add anything to the foundation of the gospel today because we already have the revelation in the New Testament. That's the bottom line of what he's, what he's saying. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I think it's quite amusing, actually, that the Book of Mormon was supposedly uh, given to, to Joseph Smith by the angel Moroni, and it's called Another Gospel <laughs> of Jesus Christ, where Paul makes it plain here, if, any, if, if we or an angel from heaven proclaim or preach to you any other gospel or another gospel uh, than that which we've preached, let him be accursed. Paul warned that we're to take heed how we build on the foundation that has already been laid. We can't add to it or take away from it. Then in the visitation, Jesus said something very interesting to me. He said, there are no foundational apostles and no foundational prophets today. There are no apostles or prophets today on the same level or authority or in the same rank or with the same degree of anointing as the apostles and prophets of the early church, no one in the church today is in the second or third class. Now, don't confuse that with, with the healing ministry That's the, and, and, and miracles and healings. That's to continue today. But no one today is writing extra books of the Bible. That's what he's saying. The foundation has been laid. The foundational apostles laid down the doctrine of the New Testament church, all right? Um, you see, when Jesus appeared to me in 1987, I didn't know exactly why he was explaining these things to me. But since Jesus talked to me in that visitation, I have become aware of errors surfacing in the body of Christ, particularly on the issue of apostles and prophets. Then I could readily understand why Jesus Christ, the head of the church, discussed these major doctrinal issues at such length. And, and the reason that I'm Sharon, I decided to go into this since we had the scripture here. I thought, well, I'll, I'll take this opportunity and share it with you. Uh, is I'm hearing some of the same things resurface today. So 
Um, I don't know if you, you have or are, but, but um, uh, I need to, to wrap this up. Okay. Uh, we will look at some of these modern-day errors in the light of the Scriptures. First, some people today claim that in order to have proper New Testament church government, the fivefold ministry must operate in every local church and make up the government of each local church. Uh, we'll discuss this error later in the book. Second, this erroneous... Te- in other words, you know, every, every local church has, should have an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. I've, I've been hearing that. I've been hearing people teach that recently. But as he teaches here and as he taught us, the, the, many of these ministries are roving ministries. There's not, they're not to be over every, or not, you're not to, you're, you don't necessarily have every fivefold ministry in each local church, all right? Yeah, okay. Second, the, this erroneous teaching says that since apostles are listed first in the list of ministry gifts in Ephesians 4.11, that means they are preeminent over all the other ministry gifts. Supposing apostles are preeminent, some people assume that apostles should govern all the other ministry gifts in the local body, including the pastor. Third, they teach that modern-day apostles and prophets are still supposed to be laying down New Testament doctrine and foundation. And they claim if you don't have an apostle governing your church and a prophet guiding your church, you don't have a correct New Testament foundation. I believe this is why Jesus said so emphatically to me in the visitation, there are no foundational apostles and prophets today. Jesus knew this error would be surfacing in the body of Christ. Jesus went on to explain that if there were apostles and prophets in our day who were on the same rank or level as Paul, for example, they could add to the doctrine of the New Testament. All right. You see some folks today have gone to the extreme in what they teach about the apostolic office and have gotten off into error. In the first place, it is not scriptural that, that, that additional foundation has to be laid in the church today. Jesus Christ is a chief cornerstone. If we need apostles to lay another foundation, then we need another cornerstone because the cornerstone is part of the foundation. You can see how absurd that is. No, we have the same gospel, the same Christ, and the same foundation that was laid for us by the foundational apostles and prophets, and we are just building upon that sure foundation. All right, that's a good place to stop. I hope I didn't lose you on all of that. All right, we got it out there anyway. All right, so let's pray. Father.